0: Thank you, please open your Bibles to the book of Second Kings. Second Kings. It's right after first Kings <laughs> And before third Kings) yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you this morning about Bible interpretation of, of all things, and we'll work that into to the message. You know, we lost a, a giant this week in Justice Scalia, a real defender of truth, and really a defender of the proper way to interpret any document. As important as it is to interpret the Constitution correctly, how much more important to interpret God's Word correctly. I hear many people say that they have difficulty reading their Bibles. We get saved, you know you're supposed to read your Bible, you start reading, and it it is difficult. It reads different than a Reader's Digest or a text message or an email, the things we typically like to read. Well, why is that? Well, it was written long ago, but people are people. Culture's changed a little, so it helps to know something about history and culture. Helps to know something about the original languages. But I think the difficulty lies less in those obstacles and more in our heart, our residual sin nature. We often come to the Bible and we want immediately for the Bible to say something about me and my problems, and we're looking for a word to perk us up, make us happy, and certainly the Bible's filled with the good news and a message of great joy, but without the bad news, there's no good news. Certainly if you picked up any book and opened to the middle and started reading, you'd be lost. And so I've been very blessed and I've heard great feedback from this endeavor to start at the beginning of the Bible and work our way through and see God's plan of salvation unfolding throughout history. Certainly the first and foremost rule of interpretation is context is king. Context is king. Without context... You can make anything say just about anything you want it to. Justice Scalia was known as a textualist. A textualist. It's a great essay written by Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. If you go on his website, albertmoeller.com, you can read that article about Justice Scalia. A textualist... One who interprets the meaning of a text by its plain and normal language. Not trying to read between the lines. Not trying to take your interpretation and impose it on the test, text, but to draw out of the text the meaning of the original author. We call that exegesis knowledge out of the text. Instead of eisegesis, putting our own knowledge into the text. And yet, when we come to God's Word and start reading, and we read of this eternal God in the beginning, God, and He created the heavens and earth, and created us in His image, and created us to have a relationship with Him, to glorify Him, to fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth, and have dominion over the earth to God's glory. It's not too long before we get to the third chapter and find out where we messed things up as humanity. In the essence of the fall of man was misinterpreting God's Word. Misinterpreting God's Word. And at the root of that misinterpretation was not trusting that God was truthful, not trusting that God had provided the best possible life, not trusting that when God said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, that that's what he meant. And so Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to become the first reader response theory advocates. Reader response theory is a... a, literary theory that, yes, the original author meant something when he wrote or spoke, but the hearer or reader of the message has the prerogative to supply the final interpretation of the text. Justice Scalia, as a textualist, said, no, the Constitution means what it means when it was written, and it is up to us to interpret it in that fashion. But there's five justices on the court now who are reader response theory advocates. Well, they say it's not not so easy. as simple as that. I mean, after all, I have my own ideas about what this text ought to mean. And before you know it, you can make the text say just about anything you want it to say. And it's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Did God really say you would die. Yes, he really said. So the first time they answer Satan, they're answering as textualists. Yeah, well, yes, that's what God really said, and death means death. And Satan tempts from another route. You won't really die. God knows on the day you eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, more like God. You will be able to determine good and evil. You'll be able to define truth. You'll be able to define your own reality, chart your own course, and decide what makes you happiest. All that's wrapped up in the fall of man. And we've inherited that nature. And because we've inherited that nature, it is natural for the natural man to want to interpret a text according to His own whims and His own desires. I see Stephanie Smith there. She asked me a question a few months ago. If that's the case, then how can we ever be sure we have the correct interpretation of any text? Great question, Stephanie. Thank you. Because those of us redeemed in Christ have been given the Holy Spirit to illumine and enlighten our minds. And when the community of believers... Study the text and use normal, plain, grammatical, historical rules of interpreting any text. The Holy Spirit will lead the people of God to the correct interpretation. And it protects the church from spurious interpretations, strange interpretations. Gee, I never heard that before. Probably because it's not in there. That's, if you're seeing something in the Bible nobody has ever seen, it's been two you know 2000 years plus you probably need to go back to the drawing room and study some more run your ideas past people of god people who are living redemptive lives with fruits of repentance humble people who come to the text saying we're going to be very careful with the text And I'm even going to be suspicious of my own interpretation. This is how we hammer out correct doctrine. And this is the way the Constitution was interpreted for years and years and years until the last 20 years. And now we see justices all over our country legislating from the bench. They will make the text say whatever they want it to mean. Instead of waiting for legislative bodies to change laws they don't like, they'll just reinterpret the law. And so we have to be careful when we come to the Word of God not to do the same. We read the text in the plain and normal language in which it was written, most of us in our English translations, and we ask, what did the message mean to the original audience? What did God intend to communicate to the original audience? Before I jump to application, I need to know what God meant when He spoke this to the original audience. And draw the transcendent truth, transcendent truth that is for all people for all time. Draw that transcendent truth into our modern context and then application. We have a tendency to go to the text and want to start with application and then we believe our application is the interpretation. It's the tail wagging the dog. Many times the true interpretation of the text is the very thing my flesh doesn't want to hear about myself. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 1 and I hope... Today, to continue what's always been done from this pulpit for 25 plus years, which is to model correct Bible interpretation and then help you make your own individual application. I can't certainly make application for 250 people, but I can help you draw application out of the proper interpretation. 2 Kings chapter 1. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Moab's the country just to the east of Israel, which would be modern day Jordan. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. Ahaziah is now king. He's Ahab's son. Ahab has died. Ahaziah has taken over the throne in the northern kingdom. He falls through his latticework in his upper chamber and becomes ill, possibly from disease setting in. We're, we're not sure. Regardless, he sends a messenger and he says to them, Go inquire of Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. You may distinctly uh, remember Beelzebub from somewhere in the New Testament. That becomes a name synonymous with Satan. It literally means Lord of the Flies, where the title of that book comes from, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. But the angel of the Lord, which... Since the beginning, since we've been going through the study of the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord has been the pre-incarnate Christ. Theologians are are fairly certain. The pre-incarnate Christ, before Christ takes on human flesh. The angel of the Lord comes and said to Elijah, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, the real God, the God who speaks, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Oh, where have we heard, You shall surely die before? Then Elijah departed. Remember, Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. He's the true God. He's the God who speaks. He's the God who heals. He's the God who saves. He's the God who judges. He's the God who gives the law. Now imagine if you read this story completely ripped from the context of the Bible and you weren't trained in any kind of Bible interpretation. Or maybe you went to a church where the Bible was interpreted allegorically. You might come up with some ideas like, you know, whoa, I just installed some lattice work in my garden at home. I think God's speaking to me that I shouldn't walk on lattice, or maybe he's trying to tell me that I spent too much money on my garden, perhaps, certainly other places in the Bible tell us we spend too much money on frivolous things, and certainly maybe the book of Proverbs tells us not to walk on lattice, I don't know, it sounds foolish, but this isn't what the Lord is saying to us, The lattice isn't the significant part of the text. What's the significant part of the text? Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies? It's sarcasm. He could have just told them, hey, there's a God in Israel, why don't you go ask Him? But God has repeatedly, as we've seen through the pages of the Old Testament, shown Himself mighty and real. And yet, this continual faithlessness, this disobedience, this belief in false gods. Perhaps even those of us with correct Bible interpretation have been following all along, are tired of hearing this message and we want to look for some hidden, deeper meaning. Well, I don't go and worship bales above, so I need the text to say something else to me this morning before I head off to work. Here's what the text is saying you, to you this morning before you go off to work. God is the true God and there are no others. Listen to the true God. You're going to be tempted all day long to listen to the false gods of this world. We need to hear that message over and over and over again. Since God repeats Himself over and over again, this message that He is the true God, we must be thick-headed and dull in spirit and obstinate in our obedience. We need to be reminded, and we're reminded through narrative, through story. Look, we're like Ahaziah. The instruction or the application then is to go home and search your life and see, where am I like Ahaziah? Where do I inquire of the false gods of this world when I have the true God who speaks to me? That message preaches. It always preaches well. We need to hear that message. Once we have the true interpretation, which is man puts his trust in things that aren't real, which are not a proper foundation, then perhaps we could look back at the text and say, you know, a lattice is made to support the growing of a vine. Perhaps God, ironically, was teaching Ahaziah that Because you put your trust in false gods, your foundation is going to crumble and cause your kingdom to die. Maybe. Maybe. But you must be careful trying to allegorize the Bible in that way. You will eventually turn the lattice into just about anything. It's not about the lattice. I looked up the word lattice in Hebrew. I worked looked up the word lattice in the Greek Septuagint. I studied all about lattice and what it was like in the Old Testament and I'm here to tell you this morning that the word means lattice. <laughs> and it's a lattice. And Ahaziah fell through it and became ill. So don't focus on the lattice. His problem was that he went to inquire of false gods. That's the point of the passage. Let's move on. Ahaziah dies according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Huh? What? Let me clear up confusion this morning. And let me clear up some confusion I inadvertently caused last week when I said Rehoboam and Jeroboam were brothers. They are not brothers. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon who took over the southern kingdom. Jeroboam was a servant and a prophet of God came to him and prophesied and said that you would take over the ten tribes of the north. It was David's sons who fought over the throne, Solomon taking over the throne. In this case, there are two Jehorams in view. Jehoram was one of Ahab's sons, and since Ahaziah didn't have a son of his own, Jehoram took over as king in Israel in the north. Jehoshaphat is the good king in the south. He has a son named Jehoram. Often kings, when their sons came of age, would co-reign with their sons, so their sons would learn the ropes. And sometimes the Bible will refer to the father as the king, or sometimes to the son as the king, or sometimes both at the same time. As the king. So it can get very confusing when we see the name Jehoram if we're talking about the king of the north or the king of the south. And to make matters even more confusing, both Jehorams do evil in the sight of the Lord. Even though Jehoram in the south had a righteous father, Jehoshaphat, as his model. He chooses to do evil once his father is gone. Sometimes when we're interpreting the Bible, we can exegete biblical principles out of stories, especially when we see stories again and again and again. What principle could we draw from this? Even a righteous father is no guarantee that the children will follow In his footsteps. It's not an excuse to not strive for righteousness as a father. But there's more going on than meets the eye. You can't program your kids to be righteous. You can lead them to the Lord. You can demonstrate righteousness to them. You can pray for them. But they're their own people with their own wills. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we get the famous story of Elijah J passing the mantle to Elisha S.H. Elijah's name means the Lord Yahweh is God. Elisha's name means God is salvation. This mantle is not A piece of wood you hang over your fireplace. It's an article of clothing that Elijah would wear. When I was little, I always thought, how strange to carry this mantle around. (laughs) And the Sunday school teachers just assume the children know what a mantle is. Notice how... how many figures of speech we have in our language that come from the Bible. It's amazing. And yet, as we become more and more biblically illiterate, we've replaced terms like passing the mantle with things like passing the torch or passing the baton. As Elijah gets caught up into the heavens on This flaming chariot, his mantle falls to the earth and Elisha picks it up. And Elisha had asked Elijah, before you go, give me a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says, it's not for me to give. I'll pray for it and if you see me being taken up into the clouds, you can be sure that that double portion will be yours. The double portion was what the firstborn son received as an inheritance. So we see this father-son picture between Elijah and Elisha passing on the mantle as we're to pass on the mantle of our faith to the next generation. Indeed, Elisha does receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit and he's able to do amazing miracles, more miracles than even Elijah was, was able to do. Again, if we ripped this story out of context and came to our Bibles as new believers and read this story, we could come up with all kinds of interesting interpretations. We could go out and buy a mantle, thinking there's some significance to wearing a mantle. I don't even know if anyone, like at Kmart or Macy's, would know what a mantle is. I don't even know what one is. Is it like a shawl or is it a a coat or... We could ask God to give us a double portion of His Spirit, hoping that we too could go and perform miracles. We have the saying in Bible interpretation that the Old Testament conceals Christ and the New Testament reveals Christ. Christ is in the Old Testament, but He's revealed in the New Testament. So as we've been working our way through the Bible, we're beginning to see a pattern. Take note of this pattern. Moses, the the great prophet of God, came to reveal the true God. God revealed Himself to Moses. I am. I am the true God. You're going to go to Egypt and expose these false gods for what they are. Powerless. And Moses leads his people out of Egypt. Slavery, but it 's Joshua, the protege of Moses, who leads them into the promised land joshua 's name meaning God saves Yeshua Elijah comes to prophesy, prophesy that Yahweh is God, there is one true God, it is Yahweh. elisha comes to bring salvation to the people in the form of amazing miracles of deliverance. John the Baptist comes to announce who the true God is and even boldly proclaims to the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, yes, the God of the Old Testament is the true God, but the God you are presenting to the people is not that God. Repent and be baptized and prepare and cleanse your heart for the coming of the true God. And the true God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. Salvation comes. And Yahweh reveals the true God. He is the true God. His disciples said, We want to see the Father. And he said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he leads his people into the true promised land. And he abolishes the penalty of the law and the idolatry of self-righteousness. So these patterns we see in the Old Testament are shadows of the true and better reality in the New Testament. Did... Elijah and Elisha actually performed miracles? Yes. What did they mean in the original context? That God was showing himself mighty and true. Is there, later in the New Testament, the understanding that there's further truth about these acts? Yes. And the writers of the New Testament helped illuminate to us that there was more going on here than meets the eye. But you let the New Testament and you let the writers of Scripture inform what those spiritual truths are. Don't attempt to do this on your own. You'll fall into allegorical interpretation. Oh, there's got to be some deeper meaning to this. There's got to be some deeper meaning. You're going to miss the original meaning. And you're going to fall into the trap of reading the meaning you want to read into the text. In 2 Kings chapter 3, Moab rebels against the northern kingdom. Every year they're supposed to bring a tribute So the northern kingdom, that's how you keep an opposing kingdom under your thumb. Make them come and pay a tribute that keeps them poor. And it's very humiliating to have to come and pay your enemies. I believe they had to bring something like 100,000 sheep every year. And one year they say, no, we're not bringing sheep this year. And Jehoram in the north goes to Jehoshaphat in the south and says, join forces with me, and we've got to squash this rebellion. And of course, it's in the southern kingdom's interest to help out, because Moab, if they get too powerful, will rebel against the southern kingdom as well. So they join forces, and Jehoram takes the lead, and he says, we're going to attack Moab from the south. We're going to go under the Dead Sea, because Moab doesn't fortify its southern flank. Because what fools would try to attack in the middle of the desert where there's no water? So they'd fortify their northern position and leave their southern flank unfortified. And Jehoram says, let's attack from the south. They'll never suspect us. And halfway across the desert, they run out of water. And now they're trapped because they don't have enough water to move forward and they don't have enough water to get back home. And so Jehoshaphat says, we need help from God, go seek the prophet. And Jehoram's like, we don't have a prophet. (laughs) And Jehoshaphat says, what about Elisha? And you'll see again and again some pretty funny stories of the northern king saying, well, I don't want to talk to that guy. He never tells me what I want to hear. So they go to see Elisha, and Elisha looks at Jehoram and he's like, what, why do you want me to help you? you? You worship the gods of your father Ahab and your mother Jezebel. What makes you think the true God's going to help you out? And you see the rebuke built into the statement. Oh, now you come to ask help when you're out of resources and he says i won't help you but because jehoshaphat is with you and he's a man of god a righteous man i will help and he tells him to dig ditches and in the morning the ditches are filled with fresh water and miraculously the troops and all the animals are rescued elisha god saves god delivers And through these miracles, the miracles demonstrate that God is the true God and He has the power to save and He alone has the power to save. And He goes on to tell them, go ahead and attack Moab and God will give you the victory. And they do. They have a great victory. And they get to the place where the Moabites realize they're in dire straits and they need to send a messenger down to Edom because they have an alliance with the Edomites, and they need the Edomites to come north and help them fight off the Israelites. But, but the southern route is blocked. So the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him. he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not break through. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place. He took the prince of Moab and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. Up high on the wall where everybody could see. I think this is where that scene in Lord of the Rings comes from where the king in his desperation tries to burn his son alive. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. The commentators have a difficult time interpreting this last sentence. The, the best I could interpret it is that just the horror and wickedness of seeing this king burn his son alive was enough to send the Israelites home and the Moabite army, seeing their prince burned alive, caused great wrath to well up them against Israel. Instead of seeing, we brought this calamity on ourselves, they said, if it wasn't for Israel, we wouldn't have had to resort to this. And great... Wrath against Israel. It made them fight more fiercely. Regardless of the interpretation, the point that we want to draw out of this text is how demonic and satanic idolatrous religion is to ask its adherents to burn their own children to death in order to appease their god. And again, Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. Just like in the story of God asking that Abraham sacrifice Isaac, but God provides a substitute. The true God doesn't ask us to sacrifice our children to appease His wrath. The true God sacrificed his own son to appease his wrath. And false religion always twists and perverts the truth. And so the application I would draw from this text is, where in my life do my false idols demand that I sacrifice my children? the God of climbing the corporate ladder, the God of comfort and ease. Some people decide not to have children because they're messy and expensive and time-consuming. Sacrifice your children you'll never have on the altar. Or, I'll never get ahead at my job if I have children. Sacrifice your children on the altar of pride. And of course, sadly, the scourge of abortion in our country. The literal sacrifice of children. It just seems cleaner when it's happening where you can't see, instead of on a wall for all to see. These illustrations ought to humble us all and sadden us all, and as I say anytime I mention this as an illustration, if abortion was part of your past, God's grace abounds. God's grace abounds. There's love and there's healing for you. And I'm thankful in our own town we have Family Life Pregnancy Center. And you can get counseling and you you can get help and find healing and cleansing in God's forgiveness. Second Kings chapter 4, we see a series of miracles that Elisha performs. And it's really interesting, the, the miracles he performs are all the same kinds of miracles Christ performs in the New Testament. There's a woman in distress. And in this case, She's impoverished, she comes back after leaving town because of famine, and when she returns, she's going to lose her property. She has no money to pay off her debts, and she'll be left penniless. And so Elisha tells her to, you know, what do you have? I have a little jug of oil. Go to all your friends and get all the pots you can find and start filling them with this oil and Pot after pot after pot. is filled with oil. And she's able to sell the oil, pay off her debts, and have enough to live off of. And reminds me of Jesus changing water into wine. A woman in distress. Well, a family in distress. The dishonor of running out of wine before the wedding feast. And... Jesus' own mother comes to him and says, do something. And he asks for empty pots to be brought to him and filled with water, and he changes the water into wine. Saving the name and reputation of the hosts of the party, but more importantly, demonstrating his power and his compassion. Elisha saves a son who dies. He lays down his life on the boy in the same way Elijah did and brings this boy back to life. Jesus brought a boy back to life right in the middle of the boy's own funeral procession. A pastor from my last church liked to say, Jesus ruined a perfectly good funeral procession. Amen. Jesus also raised a little girl back to life he raised Lazarus back to life and most importantly raised himself from the dead because he's got that kind of power and authority and so we ought to listen to this one Elisha saves a crowd from starvation by multiplying loaves of bread and of course Jesus multiplied loaves of bread So in the immediate context, we see God's prophet Elisha able to do these miracles to demonstrate his God is the true God, a powerful God and a God who saves both from temporal calamity, but also, more importantly, could this God have the power to save from eternal calamity? In the New Testament, Some friends brought their crippled friend to Jesus to be healed. And they couldn't get into the room where he was preaching. And so they went up to the roof and ripped a hole in the roof and lowered the man through the hole in the roof. And Jesus told the man, Your sins are forgiven. (gasps) A gasp. Only God can forgive sins who's this man who says your sins are forgiven? And Jesus knows what's on people's hearts because he's God and he's omniscient and he can read people's hearts. And he says, why are you shocked that I said your sins are forgiven? What would be more difficult for me to say, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? If you think about it, it's more difficult to say, get up and walk because now you have to prove that you have the power to perform the miracle, and the proof will be that this person who hasn't been able to walk his whole life can now walk. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no external proof of an inward spiritual reality. But he says, so that you will know I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the man got up and he walked. And so these miracles we see being performed by the prophets of God tell us that God is the true God. He has the power to do miracles, which means he also has the power to do the greater miracle. God saves. And he's not just saving Jews. When we get to Second Kings chapter 5, Elisha Through the power of God, saves a Syrian military captain, a Gentile, a Syrian, an enemy of Israel. Gee, the Bible's just not relevant to today's headlines. Oh, wait, there are Syrians today. And not all of them are Christians. And they need salvation. Amen. And so this man Naaman, who's a great leader in Syria, famous, wealthy, a man of means, when he says jump, people say how high, comes down with leprosy. How humiliating. Nothing you can do about it. No cure. And in the irony of all ironies, Naaman means beautiful one. And leprosy makes you look hideous. And nobody wants to go near you. You're contagious. And all his authority on earth is completely useless. So you're drawing the spiritual conclusions already, but that's okay because you've properly interpreted what's going on here in the original context. A very powerful man has a disease he can do nothing about. We are all very powerful people who have a disease we can do nothing about. It's called sin. Very accomplished people in this room. I'm just glancing around and you're good folk and you accomplish much in your work life and your home life and in your service to God, but we're all afflicted with a leprosy, so to speak. Get this. Naaman and one of his Raids into Israel, takes back slaves with him from Israel, and he has this little Israeli girl as a servant in his home. And she knows about Elisha and knows about his power. And she says to her master, If you only knew Elisha, he could help you. And Naaman is so prideful that he's offended. I'm not going to Israel to ask for help. We've got our own gods, our own prophets here, but they can't do anything to help him. And so, in his desperation, he's ready to try inquiring of the prophet. And so he goes to the king of Syria and says, can you write a letter to the king of Israel? Kind of... Uh, ambassador going across the border and don't harm Naaman. diplomatic immunity kind of thing. And so Naaman takes his entourage with them, and Elisha refuses to meet him in person, which in an honor-shame culture, could you imagine the slap in the face that would be? Do you know who I am? I'm Naaman the great warrior of Syria. And Elisha sends word that Naaman's to go wash in the Jordan seven times, and now he's even more furious. We've got better rivers back in Syria. And I do wash regularly, thank you very much. It's not going to do anything. And in his stubbornness and in his pride, he refuses to obey the prophet. And again, his servants, the humble ones, say, Master, if the prophet had asked you to do something really difficult, you would have been happy to do that. Right? So, you, so if it works, you can get credit for your effort. But he asked you to do something easy, why not try it? So again, he humbles himself out of desperation and washes in the Jordan. And on the seventh washing, it says, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This hideous, diseased putrid flesh turned into the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. I love being behind a baby in church during worship. And I just love looking at their skin. Baby skin. It's so clean and so pure and Children and babies represent all that seems innocent and good. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, his whole entourage, his whole impressive display, and here's Elisha in his uh, prophet clothes, which aren't impressive at all. If he dressed like Elijah, his mentor, it was kind of like the John the Baptist camel hair kind of stuff in his mantle. And he was bald, which was a sign of disgrace in that day with all his entourage. And he says, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Not just that there is a God in Israel, but there is no other God than the one in Israel, because he asked all the other gods to heal him, and they couldn't. So please take a present from your servant now. Hard to say if this was a gift to say thank you, But as Nathan, the associate pastor, not the prophet, reminded me this week, in an honor-shame society, you don't want to be the person receiving the gift. You want to be the person giving the gift. So he's received this amazing gift, and really it's insulting to the gift giver to even attempt to give anything back. How do you say thank you for curing me from leprosy? How do we say thank you to God for curing me from the penalty of sin, which cost God the life of His precious Son? Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Elisha said, "As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing." And he. Urged him to take it, but he refused. We can draw this spiritual truth out of this passage, take it into the New Testament. In the application here, beloved, stop trying to pay back God for your salvation. It's insulting. a thank you very much will suffice. And your praise and your dedication and your trust that this God is good and He loves and He's merciful and He takes that which is ugly and He makes it beautiful again. Stop trying to pay back God for your salvation because before you know it, you will convince yourself Somehow, you paid for your own salvation. And it creeps into your worship, and it creeps into your relationships with other people in your life. And you become blind to the fact that other people have been extending you grace, and love, and mercy. But because of your pride, you pay them back in some way, and now we're even. You convince yourself that you're not as bad as you think, and your spiritual leprosy is not as ugly and wretched as you think. And you become a person who doesn't say thank you to others. You become a person who's ungrateful and discontent. You become a person who thinks you're a victim all the time and you're filled with self-pity. But people who know that they've been given grace are the most grateful, humble, loving people on this planet. And that is what every Christian should be. If you see ugliness in your life and a lack of humility and love, I tell you, go to the foot of the cross and stay there and don't leave and do not pass go and do not collect $200 until... The point hits home that God saved you from an ugly, wretched disease that you could not save yourself from. And He did it for free. But it cost Him everything. The first fruit of the Spirit is love love, joy, peace, patience, right? Love. The first fruit, the most important fruit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, You could have all the gifts in the world, but without love you're a clanging gong and a noisy cymbal. Love. And in Ephesians 4, he says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he starts with, Put on humility. We ought to be the most humble, loving people this world has ever seen. Well, I hope this helped you with your Bible interpretation. Your job this week is to work on the application. Where where do I need more humility? Where do I need more gratitude to say thank you for my salvation and the gifts the people all around me have been giving me all along? And where... Where am I tempted to listen to the false idols of this world and not listen to the true God, the God who speaks and the God who has the power to save? Let me pray for you and you pray for me. Father God, thank you for being real and for your word being truth and life. And give us the ability by your spirit to interpret the word correctly and apply it. Help us fight against the temptation to make the Bible say what we want it to say. Make us humble and loving. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that obeys. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.